here we are, ladies and gentlemen, back for another episode of the Brothers Trek About, the original series. As always, coming at you live from Austin, I guess live on a podcast, live as opposed to dead, I guess. Anyway, as always, coming to you from Austin, it's me, Matt, and on the other side of Texas, we have Ken from Houston. Say hello, Ken. I'm entirely pre-recorded. Live long and prosper. This week we are talking about the episode "What Little Girls Are Made Of." All right, a uh, an interesting episode, oddly and oddly named, oddly titled. I think. What do you think about the title of this story? Well, I think it refers to Andrea. Andrea. Yes. Whose name, of course, is Greek for man. Oh, interesting. Well, there you yeah, go, a step so, ahead of me, something I did not know. Yeah, so, you know, we see this name, um, Andrew would be the male form. You see it in uh, words like anthropology or uh, uh, mis- misanthropy. Um, you see it in names like Alexander, Savior of Man, or uh, Cassandra, Beguiler of Man. Fair. And, of course, you see the word android. It's that so prefix Andrea then, right? the android. Yes. That prefix of A-N-D, I guess. That's the thing. Yeah. With a little R-O often, you know, andro or anthro. Well, I'm sure that there is. this is also a reference to the whole uh, sugar and spice and everything nice, that whole little phrase to... Uh, mm-hmm. ex- except it doesn't exactly connect. That's it, if I think of only it as that part for me, it doesn't really connect very well. Well, in that sense, uh, Andrea is clearly naive, right? And so, in that sense, she's you know, despite what she looks like, she's much more a girl than a woman. True, because she's she doesn't know what's going on. Well, that is fair. and of that course. Is fair. In the sense that Chapel, who clearly is a woman in the episode, not a girl, but is still sweet and good and, you know, in that sense, sugar and spice, um, rather than aggressive, hostile, you know, combative. So so the reference then is is more about, uh, uh, is more about Chapel, maybe than about anything else going on in the situation. Well, I think you do have these two critical females, right? Uh, Andrea and and Chapel. Right. And in, in different ways, they both kind of reflect the what are little girls made of, the sugar and the spice, the uh, little saying. And then, of course, one of them isn't made of the same stuff as the other. True, true, true. Although, uh, although we never see her circuitry. So to start with here, we got uh, uh, this written by a famous uh, sci-fi author. His name was Robert Block. He was a uh, fan of H.P. Lovecraft and the horror genre. You can sort of see him playing at some of those things in this episode. He had also written a little book that you may have heard of called Psycho. So that's kind of cool, which he won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for. And obviously... Uh, went on to be made as a movie by Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. He was one of the early people to see the uh, an early screening of Where No Man Has Gone Before and uh, definitely said, like, hey, you got to make me a part of this because I really think that this is cool. 
uh, a problem was is that when he came up and started writing this, he was uh, taking some liberties with a 1936 novella written by Lovecraft himself called At the Mountains of Madness. This would go on to become a bigger problem because then it also turned out that he was also uh, stealing ideas from himself by some copyrighted material that he had written for M- uh, Amazing Magazine. And not only that, but he had also copyrighted himself based on a teleplay that he did for Voyage at the Bottom of the Sea. So the way he kind of, the way the, the staff actually on, uh, on Star Trek worked around it was they added the tag of Corby, the mad scientist, also becomes a android so that he sort of has to so that that way it's not a it's not a copyright infringement it's its own little twist on the story thought that was a little interesting behind the scenes there i found out about that uh went through a bunch of rewrites went through i think three or four rewrites with block himself they tried to bring on some other famous authors to come in and do the teleplay but much like what happened in uh earlier episodes where they had famous they had a famous author writing it people were afraid to touch it people thought it was good the way it was so of course it was left for Roddenberry to go back in and uh, take care of himself which he then did uh, much much to the chagrin of uh, the script editor and other people on the show some of the other writers but it gives it that special Roddenberry flavor right exactly like a girl who basically is just wearing two strips of cloth <laughs> well in an early well right exactly in an early version of the script actually there there are some elements that you would think were very Roddenberry-esque that are actually in the script and actually Roddenberry asked him to up those a little bit more in fact I oh, wrote one of those dial that up to 11 <laughs> Right. Uh, so they were talking about, uh, you know, wh- how they were going to deal with Andrea and whatnot. He says, you write of a hint of a past between Corby and Andrea. This is an excellent situation, wrote Roddenberry. Productive of the uh, then Margot, which is another who becomes Chapel, basically. Productive of the Margot-Andrea conflict. Productive of the Andrea motivations. Do you see Corby as having sort of programmed Andrea to please? That's a lovely thought, writes Roddenberry. Later, he goes on in a... Go ahead. I think uh, Majel Barrett does a great job of keeping alive this constant, who the hell are you? What's What's this all about? Who is she? What does this mean? Oh, I know what you've been doing. Expression on her face the whole time. Yes. And it's not the same expression. I mean, she's got like six of them. (laughs) <laughs> and she'll shift between them but they all say basically the same thing i know what you've been doing i you know what the hell is this right you're creeping me out yeah and, and exploring the situation between andrea and the chapel character roddenberry was like just throwing out ideas of ways that of other ways to really explore that relationship the the sort of love triangle right So uh, Roddenberry suggests this, an even darker and uglier suspicion, since they are perfect in anything for which they are programmed, would a man want to take back a normally illogical female type of wife with all of her problems when he has had the satisfaction of the perfectly obedient creature? Or, on the other hand, 
Perhaps he would. Perhaps he would have grown tired of perfection. And either way, and during all the stages of our story, there would be this exciting conflict going on. And although the networks do protest that sex isn't really important in life, they always seem pleased when it comes to be the, st- the source of a story of conflict. Especially when it's robosexual. <laughs> right, exactly. It's not even between two people. So uh, I thought that was really fun Roddenberry stuff. Yeah, what undermines it, of course, is that our two male protagonists clearly come down on one side or the other. You know, so they never, even though they're presumably the, maybe the audience is wondering, hmm, Chapel or Andrea. (laughs) But our male protagonists never do. For Corby, the robot is always better. In fact, so much better that we should turn all humans into robots. And for Kirk, this idea is is horrible. Humans are always better. Right. And so there's there's no debate. There's no I mean, obviously in the long run, if Corby was gonna keep Chapel, he'd just turn her into a robot. Exactly. Well it seemed to be what he wanted to do with everybody. Yeah. So they sent one of the drafts of the script to NBC. It wasn't quite in its final, you know, its final uh, 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 set ways yet. It wasn't the final script, but uh, the guy at NBC, Stan Robertson, who they always sent stuff to, really liked it. Uh, but it was sort of a backhanded compliment when he wrote, the first draft of the script was a vast improvement over the initial script of the Corbomite maneuver. Simply stated, things happened. People weren't standing around waiting for things to happen. That guy really did not like the Corbomite maneuver. <laughs> Because of all of the sex stuff that was inherent in this script, uh, they actually had to uh, talk a lot with the censors on NBC. In fact, uh, uh, one of the notes that they got from the censors was uh, general cautions that the kisses throughout the script are kept within the bounds of television propriety. A general caution with regard of the embrace between Corby and Margot. Right, yeah. So that one was... uh... That one was a passionate embrace. I mean, I mean, I realize I'm coming at this with modern sensibilities, but it needed to be. You know what I mean? It needed to. Uh, it needed to show the relationship that had happened between Court- Corby and Chapel. Yeah, that, that these were reunited, you know, fiance or you know whatever their exact relationship status was. I don't know. Uh, I I can't see her Facebook status. <laughs> Right, exactly. Uh, I was trying to think of a funny name for the for a fa- for like Facebook back in the sixties, but I can't. Or on the Enterprise, you know, I was trying to think like Starbook or Starfleet Book or something ridiculous. <laughs> it wasn't anything good, so we didn't go for it. Uh, so it was funny because uh, throughout the uh, writing process of this script, uh, Miguel Barrett was kind of always over Roddenberry's shoulder, reading it, looking at it, and she, was, she thought, like, okay, this is going to be a uh, script that I could definitely be a part of. So she dyed her hair blonde without telling Gene Roddenberry and then went and, like, hung out in his office for the day. And at one point, he walked, like, right by her and just, like, kind of grunted a hello, stopped, turned back, and then realized it was Miguel. And Miguel was like, see, if I could fool you, surely I can fool NBC. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. So, of course, they create the character of Chapel, who, was, of course, within, was in the uh, Enemy Within first. But uh, uh, 
brought her back around so that they could use her in this episode. And then, of course, NBC was not fooled at all. It was like, oh, look who's back. <laughs> so that's funny. That did not work on there. Oh, also, this funny little joke from Roddenberry I thought you would appreciate. Um, <clears throat> certainly, I know my fiance would because she loves these kinds of dumb jokes. But uh, they were, when they were doing the, the final... when. Roddenberry was working on the final rewrite. He uh, sent in one on a late on a Friday night with a note attached to it that says, hey, I've added a cliffhanger into the third act. You're welcome. Cliffhanger. Because that's where Kirk is hanging from the side of the cliff. Oh, that Roddenberry. It's funny, though, because (laughs) in a lot of the memos that came out in this episode, we see more and more of Roddenberry talking about how tired he is, how he's not getting enough sleep, how blah, blah, blah. And so I think that this is something that's going to really start to play into the next half of this first season. But just so you're aware, it started now. Also, you've probably noticed that uh, Bones was not in this episode at all. Uh, his After the filming of the last episode, his contract was up. So he, they weren't sure whether or not they were going to keep Bones going. He was a little, uh, McCoy, or, uh, DeForest Kelly was a little bit nervous because he and his wife were, you know, used to the money and uh, da 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 da. So they were really worried uh, when they got this episode that, of course, he wasn't in it. But uh, there are only two other episodes in the entire run of the series that don't have McCoy in them, and they are both season. They are both season one. The first one is The Menagerie Part 2. Kind of makes sense. They're reusing footage in that one. And Errand of Mercy is the only other one that doesn't have a McCoy. Otherwise, McCoy will be seen in every other episode of the series. It does kind of make sense that, you know, in an ensemble cast, you don't necessarily have to see every character in every episode. And, you know, one thinks to Next Generation when the actors were kind of feeling like we want to do other things. Um, and, you know, the idea of being like, well, how about we only put you in, you know, 18 of the 26 episodes or, you know, 18. How I guess you were making 22 by that time. What if we only put you in 16 or 18 of the episodes? Uh, you know, and we schedule it in such a time that, you know, we make the four either at the beginning or the end of the, of the series uh, in terms of production. And, uh, you know, that would give you time off to do other things. You can certainly imagine where, if it were planned, of course, instead of just having a week where you're sitting at home going, I hope they don't fire me. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, I... You know, you could be doing it, you know... Yeah. I even remember, you know, back in the day, you and I watching Next Generation and you even talking about that very thing. You know, I mean, like, in a ship that's so huge... You know, we can. There can be like a Rikerless episode. There could be a Troyless episode. Think of all those in like season five or season four or season five when you have you know like <laughs> Keiko and everybody that you're like, why are we paying attention to these people? <laughs> you're like, oh, I guess these stars wanted a break in this one. That's why. <laughs> we'll bring them in at the beginning. We'll bring them in at the end, and then they're done for the week. Yeah, and you know, you can arrange those things so that you know those were even on the production schedule of a different week, mm-hmm. right? You know, we're, basically all you've got is a, well, we're heading to Antares 4. Uh, you know, Helm, warp back to 4. <laughs> Those are my lines. <laughs> Those are my lines. That's all I got. I'm out. That's right. Picard out. 
<laughs> I'll be at Chuckles all week. That's right, exactly. Come see, come see my my one man show. <laughs> it's it's called Number One. <laughs> so uh, many of the recurring cast members had to sit this one out due to budget's constraint. Um, Justin, the uh, producer on this one, was uh, knew this episode already was going to be intricate and difficult. It was also why they decided to uh, give this to James Gladstone and bring him back from the uh, pilot episode where no man has gone before. Uh, I think that's about all of the behind-the-scenes stuff I got. I got a few more things that I will throw into the mix as we go along, but uh, as we say, let's get to it. Engage. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So uh, we start off at uh, the beginning of this episode. We got Chapel on the bridge for the first time. And uh, if you notice that in her normal Starfleet insignia that she has on her shirt, or at this point, the Enterprise insignia that she has on her shirt, she also has a red cross on it. I noticed that a few different times throughout the episode, and it kept drawing my eye thought that was a nice little touch so it's funny because right at the beginning right at the beginning they're talking kind of i know it's because like we're coming into the situation and that they've probably been talking about it for the last few days blah 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 but they're speaking very vaguely at the beginning about some scientist that we haven't heard from in five years you know they had apparently sent out a couple expeditions nobody had heard from him so Hey, we're back here with one last chance to see if we can find this guy. And luckily, Chapel, his former fiance, or still fiance, not exactly sure how that all works out by the end, um, happens to be on board. So we have here a similar plot scenario to the man trap in that you've got this old history that's going to you know, propel us into the plot. And, and just another good reason not to have McCoy on board because it's that would, it would almost be too obvious at that point. Yeah, or too much of a reminder of oh we've just we've just done this. We're beaming down to planets where people have love interests. That's right. Well, luckily that was thirteen episodes ago, according to the uh, according to the way they actually showed them on the TV. Yeah, and you know on the one hand you understand the the way you can increase the drama of an episode by having characters have history with other characters but if you do it too often of course then it feels like like everybody knows each other in the galaxy you know we only visit planets yeah. where we have friends already <laughs> well it's the star wars universe then at that point <laughs> right another funny thing i meant i forgot to mention this is that in other versions of the script uh, it was actually a lady who had hired, quote, hired the Enterprise to uh, help her find her husband. So, obviously, uh, Roddenberry didn't like the idea of them hiring the Enterprise, you know. It should just be the ship that's on this research special and blah, blah, blah. So, that's uh, part of the reason that they changed it to a crew yeah, member. Yeah, this isn't Firefly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, we get some more of that excellent, like, 60s iconography when we see the planet XO3 and... There's like all those lists on the side of what it is. Obviously, nowadays that would be like a computer graphic with spinning things and letting you know different parts of the parts of the planet as it came by. Sciency. Yes, be a little more sciency, but this is just a picture. 
So we get some exposition here on this Corby person who they've been talking about. He is a master of archaeological medicine. The pasteur of archaeological medicine. That's right. Cor correct. Because uh, what he learned uh, from Orion history uh, revolutionized immunization therapy the way they use it today. And don't they know it? Because that is required reading at the Academy. <laughs> Which I thought was cool. That's also our first mention of the Academy, I think, right? I mean, there had to have been yeah. an Academy, probably. But here's our first mention of it. So he looks at Spock. He says, Spock, what do you think? You think he's still alive down there? And then Spock just kind of gives this half look to, to, to Chapel and then turns around and doesn't <laughs> say anything. I'm like, okay, cool, Spock. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Exactly. I feel like later on, they would have had him quote a statistic. Right, well, yeah, exactly. Four and, you know, 0.3271% chance of uh, his survival. But well, that's definitely point, what they, they did have in data. Yeah. Whereas here, I think what they do is they really play on the fact that he, he realizes that there are emotions at play. And I'm just not going to get involved in this. Yes, exactly. I better not say anything. So we get to this point in the in the opening where Uhura looks like she's about to give up. She kind of is about to throw her hands in the air when suddenly the message plays from the planet, and it's Robert Cordy. The camera slowly, like I say, slowly smash cuts as if that's a thing, but uh, it like pans, it moves in on Chapel right as she like closes her eyes really slowly, which I thought was funny. But it's it, it's yeah. in relief, you know. And, and looks uh, up. Right. Exactly. And, and gets then, this uh, close-up of her, like, kind of washing over her, you know, with relief. He's alive. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thank goodness. So, uh, and then we go, we go to credits. Dun, dun, dun. Back from the credits, it is a beautiful shot of the Enterprise surrounding a planet. Uh, obviously, the shot is, you know, like I said, we're watching the remastered here. I'm watching it on Netflix. You're watching it on Hulu. But um, No, uh, the CBS... All access. Oh, you're using the all access already. That's right. Oh, cool. That's cool. Um, anyway, so this uh, this shot reminded me very much of a next generation shot. I thought I was like, if you were to just swap out the two enterprises, you'd be like, ah, that's a shot from the next generation for sure. Look just like it. Here we are, star date you know, two seven. Oh, go if ahead. you watch the uh, the you know the early the pre remastered episodes, the yes. planets often look really goofy because of course we are before the space shot right and without actual pictures of the earth from space to look at there are just things that people missed didn't think about yeah and so you'd you'd have all of these cloudless planets <laughs> you know it's like yes exactly <laughs> apparently these, these planets all have no atmosphere well there's one there's one that comes up later i think it's the one where they go back in time where they did that shot from Earth, and it's just like it's like a globe or something. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. You're like, okay, yeah. But now, of course, once they do the remastering, now planets have atmospheres. They have yep. weather. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So we'll have to see where the star dates go from here. But I've been kind of keeping a little bit of notes on the star dates, right? So this the, this star date is two seven one two point four. The closest we've had since then, or before this, was 1709 in Balance of Terror. 
So I'm wondering if the other episodes we're going to get to will maybe fill in the gap a little bit, but it's very interesting because the first one we get, besides the uh, the original pilot, uh, which we'll use again in Menagerie, but uh, is uh, where No Man's Gone Before is 1313. The next episode was 1329. The next episode was uh, the, uh, the Man Trap was 1513. Charlie X is 1533, 1675, 1704, 1709. So that's quite a gap. I mean, that's almost uh, 100 days. I don't know. Maybe they were doing some, you know, work on the Enterprise, and so they had to go back to uh, uh, after Balance of Terror. <laughs> Maybe they needed to get some repairs done. Very possible. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting. We'll see if uh, any of that gets filled in later or if that's just, you know, 100 days or so lost. So uh, over the message, Corby asks Kirk to beam down alone. He says that uh, it's a discovery of some magnitude that requires a tough decision. The man making the request is Dr. Roger Corby. We know this because Chapel was engaged to him, we find out. Oh, my gosh. She confirms it's Roger, and then they tell, he, they tell uh, Roger that uh, Christine is coming, too. He seems happy about it. And part of this happiness is really shown because there are two extras in the background who are both happy and excited standing back there about listening to the reunion, as well as when they go to the turbo lift, Uhura stops her, gives her a hug, and then kisses her on the cheek. I was like, wow, well, we are all emotional now, aren't we? Whew. That's right. And, and, of course, when Corby finds out about it, like, he asks some totally bizarre questions like, where are you? <laughs> like, I'm on the Enterprise. <laughs> right? I'm right here. What are you talking about? I'm talking to yeah. you on the ship. Yeah, I'm standing next to Captain Kirk. What do you mean, where am I? I'm on Starbase 12, you know? <laughs> I'm just being patched exactly. in. Exactly. But, but I am beaming <laughs> down. That was the point, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We had the uh, trans-warp beam down that they had in the uh, the new versions. <laughs> yeah, that's why we don't see Scotty, because he's actually running this thing from Starbase 12. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, he asks some, you know, odd questions, like he's confused. Yep. And of course, what are I, you these know, people doing here? Yeah, in one sense, you know, it speaks to the, oh my goodness, what? What wonderful news. I'm surprised. I'm shocked by the news. On the other hand, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of being set up for the reveal later in the episode. Yeah. Uh, so, to the transporter room, where they decide to beam down to a really cold planet without any coats on. Yep. I was like, uh, you probably should be wearing something. I always feel like in Next Generation, they were always really good about putting coats on. Mm-hmm. Well, they probably had more budget for, uh, <laughs> for, for wardrobe. That's probably fair. Uh, no one is there when they arrive down on the planet. Kirk is very suspicious, so he calls for two red shirts to beam down. Uh, they this, by down. the way, is the first time we actually see, you know, the the, the red shirt who then yep. gets the fate of the red shirt. Exactly. Up till now, everyone who has beamed down and then gotten killed has been wearing a different color shirt. Yes. Both blue and gold. Yep. So they travel down deeper into the tunnels. One red shirt stays behind. The other one follows. Then they go through a door. And then they're back on the same set. But it's a different part, promise. Chapel almost dies because we have to set up that there's a cliff here and bad things happen near cliffs. They near a path where they find Corby's assistant, Brown, right? 
And then we hear the red shirt fall in the background, and we're like, oh, no. So they run back up, and his assist- and Brown looks over, and he says, no, there's no hope. Sorry. This, the, the hole is bottomless. And then all of a sudden, uh, we see Lurch, as if somebody rang. <laughs> so this, of course, is Ted Cassidy, right? The guy who made Lurch famous on the original Adams Family TV show, of course. This is sort of a weird... Adam's family Star Trek connection that we have here, right, with Lurch and Rook here, or Rock. It sounds like Rock. I kept writing Rock, and then I read the when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, I guess it's supposed to be Rook. But I, I, I always heard Rock, so that's what I'm going to call. Anyway, so it's interesting because we got we got this guy playing Lurch as Rock, and then later in the movies, we got another tall guy playing Lurch, who goes on to play Mr. Home with... Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitchell Barrett. Mitchell Barrett, exactly. So how so, crazy. Two different Star Wars, or two different Adams Family Lurches appearing in Star Wars. And hanging out with Mitchell Barrett. Exactly. Both times. That's crazy. Some other quick notes about Cassidy here. During the filming of this one, he's the guy who went and lent his voice into the evil Baylock that they talked to during the Corbomite maneuver. So that voice that he that they're talking to when it's the fuzzy guy with the pointed chin and the weird eyes, that's actually Ted Cassidy's voice, which I thought was really cool. I will give you ten of your Earth minutes. <laughs> that is the guy. You got it. He would return to do some off-camera hissing as the Gorn in the arena as well, which I think is funny. Exactly. And then he would also be in a pair of uh, other pilots that Roddenberry would do, including Genesis 2 and Planet Earth. So that's uh, some little fun stuff going on there. So after the red shirt falls into the uh, bottomless pit, we are now suspicious because Brown doesn't recognize Chapel at first. It like takes a moment for it to click. Wait, I know this person. Your name is Christine. How are you? You know, it's very weird. Very, we're extra suspicious. Kirk is definitely suspicious. Even Chapel sort of half-heartedly just plays that off. Well, you know, on the one hand, it has been five years. You know, True. assuming Dr. Corby didn't, you know, give him the update. Like, oh, and Christine's there too. Yay. Then, uh, you know, it's plausible. You just True. see two people. One of them kind of looks familiar, but you're like, you know, whatever. Or you get the searching, accessing, databanks, you know. Uh, oh, Christine, yeah. Good to see you. So we then see Lurch go and kill the second security guy who is manning the beam down spot, right? He was he was talking to Spock. Or no, he's talking to Kirk. Kirk was telling him, you know, give regular uh, updates. Let the Enterprise know what's going on. And so this guy the whole time is looking the wrong way. That's what I couldn't get over. Like if it was me and I was that security guy, I'd have like pushed myself up against a wall. I would have been like, nobody's coming to get me. Yeah. All right. And as soon as I see that like giant rook guy, I'm pulling out my phaser and I'm shooting. Right. But no, this guy, he just uh, looking the other way, kind of leaning up against the wall and then boom, gets killed by the giant rock. So we find out that the inhabitants of this planet uh, went from the surface to the caverns when the air outside got cold. And then 
I, I, I did I listened twice and I couldn't quite catch what they said here, but they said that they then they lost their freedom and went to a mechanistic society. I think what they were saying is that the you know there were social costs to to moving from the surface to the underworld, and they had to you know basically go from an organic society to one that was entirely mechanistic and. It imposed all these social costs and it messed them up. And gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So they, so then they arrive in this room, and then out of nowhere, this amazingly beautiful brunette shows up. She might even be redhead. It depends on which scene you're watching. Uh, <laughs> and and then instantly they go. She's gorgeous, by the way. That that actress is like wow, amazing. Oh. But but in this, then we get two close-ups of Chapel, right? Both trying to like, and it's two of the different looks that you were talking about earlier, where you're like, she's suspicious. What's going on? Who is this lady? What's happening here? I know what's been going on here. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Well, I have some notes on this actress, so we'll talk about her really quick. Her name was uh, Sherry Jackson. She had begun working in front of the camera at age six and then just had a career that just followed all the way up doing some stuff as a teenager blah 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 then i like the way that they wrote this in the book by the mid 60s she had blossomed and steamier roles were coming her way <laughs> so i like that and uh, another funnier note is that she would work with shatner again in the 1975 series barnaby coast so she would work with shatner again and probably kiss him again let's be honest you know so kirk has a reputation in the popular culture as being something of a space Lothario, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. But in fact, when you watch the episodes, he is no Casanova. That's not happening. Right. You know, he's much more, you know, a ship's captain. And you get the sense that he's a military man who's got this, uh, you know, a mission. He's, he's not running around. And... You know, in some episodes, he's clearly not interested in the attractive, you know, lead. And, you know, in this episode, of course, this is this is the first episode in which Kirk, you know, is basically fighting against artificial intelligence. It's, it's a regular theme in Star Trek. This is our first um, example of it. And, I'll, you know, most of his interactions with Andrea are concerned with, you know, his, his struggle with artificial intelligence, confusing it, you know, throwing a logic bomb at it. Right. Or an emotion you know, bomb kind of in this stuff. case. Right. Yeah. So, you know, he's trying to basically turn her. In one sense, of course, he has that charm, which you know, we might associate with James Bond or, um, you know, just he's super charming and we're just supposed to accept that other kinds of characters will be interested in him, attracted to him, compel, you know, find him compelling. He's not a wallflower. He's not someone who's easy to ignore, which is actually a quality you'd expect in a super spy, but not necessarily a ship's captain. You know, so a lot of what he's doing in this episode is he's basically just using his charm to survive, to 
turn people who are in Corby's camp to his side. He does it again with, with Rock later on. Uh-huh. Both in the sense of, you know, trying to use his his personal magnetism, but also throwing a logic bomb. And so, you know, even though Kirk has this reputation, it, it really doesn't exist unless you only watch, like, six episodes. <laughs> Fair. Then you're like, oh, yeah, totally. But then you watch, like, the other 73, and you're like, nah, nah, <laughs> don't see it. <laughs> so at this point, Dr. Corby arrives. And uh, he and Chapel uh, immediately kiss. We've already talked about this kiss a little bit. It's a little, like, crazy and intense. But, again, I think had to be. Yeah. Well, it certainly serves its function in, in, in the story. And I think that's one of the reasons that the censors would allow it, is these. this is a couple. They, they are real. This isn't, like, strangers meeting at a bar. Right, exactly. I mean, I'm sure there was worse stuff even then on soap operas going on, so... But did they say earlier that she gave she gave everything up to pursue her medical career? But here um, again, it sounds it, like they picked up where they left off. Uh huh. In fact, Andrea still calls her uh, Corby's fiance. Right. Is that a tidbit I missed, or do you have a theory? So I think what happens is, you know, she had been pursuing this science, you know, career with Corby. Corby then leaves to go off and work on this, you know, particular uh, isolated planet. And so, you know, for whatever reason, she didn't go with him. She may have been attached to a different institution. She wasn't, you know, she had to complete her career, you know, or whatever. Right. And then instead of going to the next step, you know, in whatever career path that would have been, she signs on to the Enterprise, I can't imagine that she would be thinking that she was somehow going to find Corby on the Enterprise unless there's this lurking idea from the original script that she was the one who hired the Enterprise to find Corby. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, instead, you know, you'd think that, well, this was your... I mean, I, I certainly get the idea from Kirk that you would have had more more opportunity to do groundbreaking, interesting science in a lab somewhere. And you certainly seem to have had those opportunities. Yeah. And you pass them up to do this. On the other hand, we're boldly going where no man has gone before, and we just discover some awful cool stuff too. So. True. I don't know which is the better call for the, for the, the uh, ambitious scientist. So Corby finds out about Kirk's lost man, and uh, Kirk calls to check on the other one. There's no response. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Brown draws a gun and tells Kirk not to call a ship or send any men down. Corby, instead of again explaining himself here, <laughs> speaks cryptically and says, no, just let me explain. I promise it'll all make sense. So he tells, But it'll take 20 hours. Exactly, exactly. He tells Kirk... <clears throat> he tells uh, he tells Andrea to take Kirk's weapon, so instead he pulls Andrea close and uses hers like a shield, and then does a somersault, which is not the most expertly executed somersault that I've ever seen, <laughs> and takes cover behind the table. Brown is ready to fire, but kook, uh, but kook, <laughs> but Kirk fires first, 
Was that what they called him in Mad Magazine? I just think I remember that. I think he was always Captain Kook in Mad Magazine. <laughs> Sorry. As I say it wrong, it then re- made me real- remember that. <laughs> so anyway, Brown is ready to fire, but Kirk fires first. And then Lurch rushes in, and he disarms Kirk, and he throws him up against a wall. We cut to Brown. Yeah, and he holds him like a, like a rag doll. Yeah. I mean, he's like, he's just picking him up. I know. Like- every time, every time Rook, Rook Pack picks him up, it's like he weighs nothing. Is what it looks like. It's crazy. Yeah. We cut to Brown, and we can see that he's a robot. Dun, dun, dun. Kirk knows this, too, while still being pinned against the wall. And we go to commercial. <laughs> Need to take a breath after that moment. What is happening here? We got people who are uh, androids. We got Kirk being thrown around like a rag doll. It's craziness. Back at it. Spock receives a call from Kirk on the planet. But back on the planet, we see that it's not Kirk at all. It's Lurch using Kirk's voice to respond. (laughs) This is not a vain display, says Corby. You know my work. This is why this doesn't make... (laughs) Oh, this is not a vain display, says Corby. You know my work. So this is the thing that always bothers me. This always drives me crazy in scripts. And obviously it happens a lot, and I know that without conflict, there is, you know, no... There's no, there's no show, right? I, I understand that. But it's always so <laughs> annoying to me when people could just hash out what is happening right now. No, look, I got some people who are robots. You know, like, just tell them what's going on. Why are you so cryptically? Why are you, like, waiting? You know, why are you pulling a, a, a James Bond villain and being like, I will show you in 24 hours why we are being so vicious. You know, it's like, just hash it out right now, please. You're being ridiculous. <laughs> Anyway, back to yeah, I mean, it. you have to imagine that he's like some kind of super uh, awkward, you know, like, I had to spend seven months coming up with how I would tell you this. <laughs> now I got to do it exactly the way I planned. I can't ad-lib the smallest piece of it. Because uh, I got to do it exactly the way I wrote it down. <laughs> well, see, that I would love. If you give me an explanation as to why he's being so weird about it, then that's awesome. All right, anyway. You crazy scientists who never get out of your lab. You have no social skills. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I know, exactly. And two people are dead now because of it. Oh, well. But totally against my will. <laughs> exactly. I mean... After all, if Corby would have just showed up when they beamed down in the first place. I mean, you got to wonder what he was doing that's so important. Was he having some alone time with Andrea or something? What was going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's not like he didn't have a heads up. I know, exactly. I mean, oh, you're here already? Well, what came up? Yeah, I know. You know? <laughs> Again, like, no explanation. What? I'm going to meet you. Oh, wait, I totally forgot I was in the middle of an experiment with explosive chemicals. I really have to look after this. Exactly. It's awful. Anyway. No, instead it has the feeling of a like a supervillain. Yeah. Who's toying with you. Yeah, exactly. He, he, That's what I'm saying. It's like a James Bond supervillain. Right, yeah. Oh well, whatever. It's fine. Kirk is now Yeah, I mean wait, what makes infinitely more sense is that he shows up at the entrance and he's like, uh you know, up till now my work has been, you know, based on uh, immunology and uh, medical archaeology and you know 
botany or whatever. Uh, but now I've moved into robotics. I've made some amazing breakthroughs uh, in ways that w that tie back into all my previous work. I really have to show it to you. It'll be fascinating. And then Kirk could be like, oh, you mean like uh, prosthetic limbs? Oh, better than that. And then, you know, uh, uh, I forget Nurse Chapel's first name. Christine. Yeah, Christine, it's so good to see you. Okay, we're off the robots now. We let them have a few minutes together. And then, of course, you know, you can delay more about the robotics by saying, but first, let's eat. Let's, you know, uh, you know, it's so good to see you, Christine. And, and you know, he wants in this point to, like, do a little bit of the groundwork. But at least we wouldn't be like, why is everything so cryptic? Exactly. Instead, you'd have this sense that, okay, the guys make some breakthroughs. Apparently, it's robotics, but it also ties into his previous work, which makes sense. Okay, this seems reasonable. Yes, exactly. Instead of, you know, I'm going to send Dr. Brown, who's going to stand in front of a crazy light. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to show up where I said I was going to be. At the entrance, I'm going to make you walk through a crazy, dangerous cave where people could just fall and die. <laughs> right, exactly. Why don't we put railings on these things, people? Uh, exactly. And then, it's not like you don't have robot workers to do it. <laughs> You're right. And, you know, so you could have written it in such a way that instead of looking and acting like a supervillain. Now, on the other hand, if you make him too normal in the beginning, in a, in a mere hour drama, how do you suddenly turn him into the exactly. villain? Exactly, exactly. You know, you kind of want us to understand right away why Kirk is going to be quite so combative early on. Instead of us going, Kirk, you're a jerk. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. He's, he's a scientist who's just working on some stuff. Sounds promising. You know, why are you so suspicious? Especially but instead, this way now, matter. everybody is suspicious and on edge and uh, really dying yeah. now to know what's going on. Yeah, so this is a case of what we might call refrigerator logic, where while you're watching it, it works really well. And then as soon as you walk away from it, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Why was that guy so weird? Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so here we go. 24 hours is what he needs to convince them. So uh, they take Kirk. Uh, he's convinced that Corby and Lurch are dangerous, obviously, so he tries to escape. But luckily, Rock handles him pretty, pretty handedly. <laughs> Just throws him up against a wall. Uh, Andrea shows up in Chapel's room. You know, I feel like does the typical robot question thing. Again, this is probably the first of its kind, so I can't give it, you know, I can't get at it too much for that. But, you know, it's like always she, like... She also does the new girlfriend thing. <laughs> like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. Right. He said wonderful things about you. How can you love Roger and not trust him out of nowhere? I'm just wondering. Yeah, you're like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's, not, that's getting to it. Luckily, Corby shows up and interrupts this awkward uh, back and forth. Tells Andrea to quit calling him Roger and asks Christine for time to explain. Let me start with Andrea. I love that. He's like, let me start with Andrea. And he's, she's like, yes, please explain Andrea. <laughs> I love <laughs> yeah. her reading on that. It's so funny. Yeah. Uh, I love it when he's like, uh, you know, I had, to, I, had to create, I had to create an assistant. He's like, well, she's like, well, how convenient. She's like a computer, Christine. I mean, geez. 
She only does what I a say. A very sexy computer. Right? Exactly. She's a sexy computer. You know, for mechanical reasons. And she's like, you mean a mechanical geisha? I was like, yeah, yeah you go, girl. To it. Yeah. Totally calls him out. Yeah. Do you think I can love a machine? He asks. Well, do you? She asks back. Yeah. <laughs> hey, she only simply obeys orders, all right? I mean, once we have... Mecha- You're not helping! I know, exactly! <laughs> right? What's, what's, it's only for the sex. There's no no emotions at all. You know? Well, you know, it's actually... Ultimately, in the end, it's kind of good that he turns out to be a robot because then you could almost believe, well, he, maybe he didn't sleep with her because, you know, he has yeah. no biological <laughs> needs. Yeah, because you do see the, the scene where Robot Kirk is back from the ship mm-hmm. and uh, real Kirk has already implanted his logic bomb and his emotion bomb. Yeah. And she walks up to Robot Kirk and says, may I kiss you? And he's like, no, it would be illogical. Yes. Somehow he throws the hand up too, like, no. Yeah. (laughs) I'm good. And you're thinking, so, you know, and this, of course, is if he's implanted with real Kirk, real Kirk would be about his mission. And my mission right now is to uh, give Kirby you know, recommendations about the planets and to make sure the gear is collected and, and beamed up and, you know, in innocuous boxes so that the crew isn't like, oh, wait a minute, you're building robots. In fact, you're all robots. You're android replacements. Uh, what about the captain? <laughs> you know, instead, you're going to, you know, he's got a job to do, right? Right. So you'd think, you know, Captain Kirk would be about his, his mission. And so... It would make sense for Android Kirk to likewise be like, listen, I, I got things to do. I, I you know, I, I, I don't need this distraction. As opposed to being like, no, it is illogical. <laughs> because, of course, he's really a robot. And right. one of the themes of the show is that these robot replacements may look and seem like real replacements, but they're not. They're really machines. And so Robot Kirk doesn't want to kiss. And, you know, when we confront Corby at the end, he's like, no, no, I'm a real person. Look, uh, you want me to calculate? No, wait, I mean, uh, transmit? No, I mean, (laughs) microwave? (laughs) Microwave. (laughs) That would be impressive. My my stomach makes hamburgers. (laughs) Check this out. Tea, Earl Grey, hot. (laughs) So Corby then gives a demonstration of the emotionless Andrea. He, he asks her to kiss Kirk. That must have been a rough day on the set. Uh, and then to slap him, you know? Oh, so here's a story. Hit me. So Kirk takes the actress to lunch at the commissary, right? And she shows up at the commissary wearing a bathrobe. Right? So, you know, now in one hand, you're, you're probably thinking, you know, maybe she's like, who knows how people show up at, you know, at the commissary yeah, yeah. because you're in costume, you're out of costume, you're partially out of costume. Like I'm still wearing parts of it, yeah. but I'm not wearing the whole thing. You know, we often see those movies in which like a guy dressed up as like a, a giant alien is getting a sandwich and, you know, a, a fruit cup. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So anyway, she's there in a bathrobe with Shatner and she takes off the bathrobe to reveal that she's in costume for the episode which means she has no back and is basically wearing two strips of cloth yeah 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 and apparently the whole commissary is like whoa 
So that was my story. Nice. <laughs> well, this is a side story that I that I heard recently about Roger Moore, um, who apparently had a little joke that he would he would use with the girls that he ended up in bed with on set, right? You know, all the Barbara Bach and uh, Octopussy. What's her name? gonna drive me crazy anyway you know he ends up on set as bond you know blah, blah blah so the little joke that he would always use every time would be uh he'd slip into bed and he'd be like so i just want to let you know that i'm sorry if i get an erection or if i don't <laughs> such a great so great i love that how, how well how better what better way to put them all at ease you know it's great yeah. side note actually as we're since we're talking about her costume uh there was actually uh, an NBC sensor on set, on set. I mean, making sure that her cleavage wasn't showing, because back then part of the rules was is like you could wear a low cut shirt, but we couldn't see any part of the breasts at all. So they had to use double sided tape to make sure that it never like moved or anything. And there was literally an NBC guy there on set making sure that there were never any boob slips. So I thought that's pretty funny too. So he has her kiss Kirk, or yeah, he has her kiss Kirk, and then slap him, you know, just to show, hey, this is simply logic. But then my question is, is that if this is simply a logic, and if she's simply an assistant, and blah, 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 then why make her look hot? <laughs> That's, That's the right. question. <laughs> it's so weird. And, you know, the thing is, she could have been, you know, like the frumpy librarian who, who turns out to be beautiful. Right. Even if she could have had her hair up. And just been an attractive person, but like was clothed completely. <laughs> yeah, in, exactly. In that jumpsuit that came up to here, and you could see that she's shapely. Yeah, and that she's pretty, but you wouldn't go, "Oh, you're a sex, you're a geisha." Exactly. Which, of course, I mean, the, Christine looks at her and goes, oh, "I know what's going on here. I totally know <laughs> exactly. what's going on here." You were so awkward, Corby. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Give me 24 hours to explain. <laughs> yeah, 24 more hours, please. <laughs> no, I think I already know. So then Kirk says, but if they are emotionless and they follow orders, then why did Brown attempt to shoot me? Why did Rock kill two of my men? So I had begun to suspect here, this is a note I wrote about myself, I suspected here that they uh, did have emotions, but they just didn't know what to do with them. This is sort of true as it ends up playing out but that was my thought at this point and then of course corby in the perfect bond villain voice says i will answer your questions now cut to rock laying this piece of green foam human shaped down on a machine uh, and then it spins around and we see a naked kirk on the other side this is also by the way the reason that there was a sensor on, sh on set because they wanted to make sure that uh Stuff wasn't showing there either. And then, boom! Commercial. We took a break right here in recording, and uh, while we were doing it, Ken was still talking and shared this funny story right here. You know, I realized I watch these, and I don't notice the going to commercial breaks, right? I, you know, I'm just... Uh, it's a part of the way TV works, and I ignore it. And, you, you know, you always are like, and then we go to commercial. And so when I was watching it this time, I was like, oh, yeah. You, I mean, it's obvious when they're going to commercial. <laughs> but I had to be looking for it. <laughs> see, I'm just the opposite. I can't help but see it.
So we come back from commercial. We're back at it here, and the machine starts spinning. Chapel yells at Corby, This isn't like you. The machine spell spins faster. Corby basically says, yes, it is. And the machine goes faster and faster and faster. And suddenly it's a blurry image. And now there are two naked Kirks. You wouldn't have heard it, an insect or an animal. That's right. But now you are making one spin really fast on a table. <laughs> this is so unlike you. What are you doing? Uh, sure enough, the machine stops. There are two Kirks on the table. But which is your Kirk, he asks Chapel. She doesn't know. Corby then claims he can replicate the nervous system and the memories of Kirk. He can even replace Kirk on the bridge, and no one would ever know. And then, I suspected this... But of course that's not what I'm trying no, to no, do. No, 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 never, 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 never. Uh, it's just a demonstration. But I love it. And uh, I, I also wrote uh, my theory as to what was happening. So this, by the way, I, I didn't mention this at the top, but uh, this is an episode I don't know as well. You know, some of the other, the other episodes I had watched uh, many, many times because of, you know, like, no, I'm really going to sit down and watch the entire series this time and probably watch some of those episodes three or four times before finally not watching all the rest of the episodes. So this is one I didn't, I don't, I don't even know if I've ever saw. Because I certainly don't remember... Oh, really? Yeah, I, I don't certainly remember Lurch being part of uh, any of the Star Trek episodes. Because oh, I'm sure... See, I can remember watching this one. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. So, I, as I go along then, I like had these all like, this is what I suspect is happening. And then it's really great to see whether or not I'm right or wrong. So, of course, I knew that at this, per at this part, Kirk was implanting the, uh, I'm sick of your happy theories, Mr. Spock. Because why would he just be saying that to himself, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then I even asked the question right here. I says, now for the real question about this episode, is Corby even real? I asked myself. <laughs> I'm so clever. Anyway, this is clearly a quote from the episode, but I don't remember what this is about. And all it says is, uh, oh, oh, I know what it was. So we cut back to the dining room, and uh, Andrea is uh, serving dinner to Christine. Right, and she says, "I am no, I am now programmed to please you too." Whoa, that's all I wrote after that. Dinner with Kirk. Aha, but which Kirk, huh? <laughs> so Kirk is uh, kind of a, kind of giving her, you know, asking her some questions about how she's feeling and what's happening, and he even asks her, uh, "If I gave you a direct order, would you betray him?" And she says, "Don't put me in that place. I'd rather fall off the same precipice where Matthew dies." She can't decide, which hey, she's wibbly wobbly in that in that in this case. Anyway, she says, "Oh, I just can't eat." And then Kirk, she's sitting with, says, "I can't eat either." And in walks Corby, and in walks the real Kirk, and they sit down. And now we're at a great table where we got two Kirks going on. Kirk is sort of testing the memory of the uh, of the android Kirk, and this is the we get the mention of Kirk's brother Sam, right? George Samuel Kirk. Corby says to him, you may as well outthink a calculating machine. Yeah. Oh, calculating machines. Yeah, that's, that's about as rough as I can imagine. Yeah, that's so high tech. 
<laughs> there is a lot of, you know, when they're talking about the AI, right, they can clearly imagine a super intelligent AI. But the way they talk about it sounds so 60s. Right, exactly. More than the, more than the decor or the, the graphics or the, the uh, fonts or whatever else they're using that goes, whoa, that looks like it's, you know, 1966, yeah. very mod. I mean, even the space hippies, yeah. <laughs> you know, are, are vying for, uh, boy, that, that's dated the way they talk about computers. Yeah. It's a calculating machine. They might as well say abacus at that point, really. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, talk about, like, how big computers are. Oh, this is the biggest computer you've ever seen. It has 256K memory RAM. You know, you're like, whoa! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why, on the Enterprise, that would fill a room! So Corby basically <laughs> says, uh, well, what you saw was only a machine. Uh, don't you understand? I could put your very consciousness into it. You could practically be immortal. So I say to myself, well, this must be... Your soul! Exactly. This must be what he's offering, then. Immortality. Dun, dun, dun. Um, this, this is then the first time that we get the uh, list of historical figures where half of them are real and half of them are fake. <laughs> Genghis Khan, Caesar. Yes, exactly. Ferris. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking, is it Jeff? Hitler and Tavian, I think, is what he's, one of the ones he said. I'm like, oh, okay, well, we're making them up now. But anyway, I love it. So... Um, <laughs> So this is kind of now, this, this also to me feels like very like Bond versus Bond villainy. Um, right. Oh, yeah. Right here much. where he's like, where he's like, but, you know, I'm giving you immortality. I'm giving you, you know, no disease. And he's like, no fear, no sentiment, no love. You know, that's the other side of this practical coin of yours, Corby. So Corby wants to go to a, co a colony and selectively start reproducing, re you know, reproducing people selectively. I mean, this is like... I think he really needs to replace <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, this is like eugenics in robot form. That's what I wrote. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's not like he's going to make duplicates and they're going to walk around going, Hello, Organic John. Hello, Robot John. I'm farming today. Farming is good. I will farm too. <laughs> it's not like they're going to have two. Uh, he's going to get rid of the one. Right. So, And w what will happen to them? Yeah, right? It's not going to be good, I'm sure. I wrote, this sounds dangerous. That's actually what I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, this, this planet produces so much food. It, not only do, do we have tons and tons of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Ketracel, but uh, we've also got all this Soylent Green being produced. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> so, meanwhile, while all of this has been going on, Kirk has been secretly untying the rope from this like primitive chair that's right there. So uh, he uses it to choke out Corby. So then I asked myself, wait, so then Corby is real because now he's being choked out? He's not an android? Hmm, question I asked myself. Anyway, so Kirk, Kirk escapes into the corridor, right? So Corby sends Lurch after him. Chapel chases Rock, trying to stop him. No, don't do it, Rock. Blah, blah, blah. So uh, we get back to the beginning. We get to back to the opening little area where the, where the second red shirt died. And Kirk decides he's going to... Pull out a pull off a stalactite and use that against uh, and use that against rock. 
Uh, this is always. This is also, by the way, a very unfortunately shaped stalactite. I should also mention. <laughs> in fact, it was funny because Jamie walks into the room and is like, "What's happening here?" Um, so well, you know, part of the problem, of course, is that all of their props are made of foam. Right. So it, it's it's not like they could have a realistic looking, you know, rock thing without either a lot of work by somebody to carve it. Yeah. Or you just go, it's foam. <laughs> it's going to look like foam. Exactly. At this point, then, Rock uses his fake voice thing to pretend to be Christine. Uh, luckily, Kirk's smart enough to uh, figure out what's happening. But he uses it to lure Rock into the fight. So then a fight ensues. And Rock tries to, and uh, he, he hits him with a slag type, but it doesn't really do a whole lot. So then Rock picks up Kirk and throws him over the edge. Bump, bump, bump. Kirk hanging on a literal cliffhanger as I joked or as Roddenberry <laughs> joked earlier, right? Uh, Kirk hanging from a cliff rock looms overhead as we go to commercial dun, dun, dun. back at it. The staring contest continues, but this time rock pulls him up. Didn't expect this. Well, he, he first, he makes a bunch of like weird expressions. Well, of course. Cause, Cause he's an Android. And you know, you, at the time I'm watching when, what is he doing? Is he taking pity on Kirk? And, you know, it's only at some point later that I realize, oh, he was following Christine's orders because Christine did order yes. him. Don't hurt him. As he went into the cave. So, you know, it, it took a little bit, but I'm like, okay, he's, he's processing. And part of it's because he's making expressions rather than just saying, well, the you know, your companion ordered me not to kill you, so right. picks him up. So then we go to the Enterprise, and we see Android Kirk beam up. He returns to the ship. Uh, and, of course, the biofilters on the transporter aren't like, whoa! <laughs> this is not our captain. What is happening here? Also funny, too, at, at this point in the uh, original script, Spock knew it wasn't Kirk because Kirk didn't have his phaser on him. Thought that was pretty funny. Oh, but uh, instead we go back to the implantation that uh, Kirk had put in earlier. Uh, he walks by Spock. Spock says, "Captain," but Kirk doesn't Spock, so he goes into his office. And it's cool this little thing that they do where he opens up the safe, so he knows the code of the safe, right? So uh, Spock is trying to like get through to him and and you know give him his theories of what's happening. And of course, as we saw earlier. He calls Spock a half-breed, and immediately Spock knows. I don't need your half-breed interference. Right. We see uh, Sp Spock sees the mistake right away, and he calls for security men to uh, beam down, but only after Android Kirk is beamed down. So then we cut to a scene with Kirk and Corby uh, looking at destinations that the Enterprise is going to go and where possibly that they could stop. Uh, Android Kirk has a very good idea of where he thinks they should stop, at which... Uh, little colony they should stop on cut to the real kirk lying in his room andrea andrea brings in a tray uh oh no comes in to take a tray away and kirk stops her he tells andrea to kiss him and they kiss she tries to slap him as is her response as she learned earlier but then he stops her and forcibly kisses her she says i'm not programmed for you Confusion, <laughs> emotions, it's all starting well, to happen, right? Not and 
you, you were programmed for somebody, apparently. Yeah, exactly right. That's what I was going to say. And we've uh, finally learned that lesson. All right. We know what's going on now. So confused, she leaves. Kirk tries to leave, but boom, Rock is right there, standing guard. Kirk Although, him. you'd have to wonder. So the guy's by himself, right? Mm-hmm. Corby. Why would you put, like, uh, you know, boundaries on your, your sex bot? You're like, are you worried that your other robots are going to make moves on her? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. why, would you, why would you program in the I'm not programmed for you? Now, remember, uh, Andrea Bot, you are only my sex slave. No, nothing for Rock, nothing for you know, the other guy who dies in scene one. <laughs> Dr. Brown. Just me. So Kirk uh, here challenges Rock. Rock thinks Kirk should be dead, maintaining him as trouble. So then Kirk starts to grill him. What happened to the old ones? Did they build their machines too well? Did they give them pride, he asks? They went past logic. Then Rock says, they grew fearful of us. They began to turn us off. Well, then aren't you worried that Corby is going to do the same thing? Says Kirk. It did happen. The robots destroyed them. Rock says... They were inconsistent. Existence. Survival, says Rock. That was the equation. Kirk pushes him some more. But Corby enters just in the nick of time, and Rock advances very slowly, by the way. Rock slowly advances onto Corby. And in a very aggressive stance, and he's like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So Corby fires, destroying Rock. Boom. One android down. Corby moves them into another room. But as they're walking through the doorway, Kirk attacks Corby. There's a there's a a lesson here. So when I play when I specifically when I played Star Trek the role playing game. Okay. One of the ways that I would signal to players that combat is not lethal is that all the adversaries would use stun. Right? Nobody's going to disintegrate you. Right. And when you see an adversary who's going to disintegrate you, he's going to, like, be special, and he's going to disintegrate somebody else first so that you know. You're not going to have to walk into situations going, uh, if I lose, do I get captured and then rescued later on in the episode, or do I get disintegrated? You don't have to guess, right? Right. So having a character whose weapon is set to disintegrate. And the minute he point, you know, pulls it out and shoots it at Rock, Rock is disintegrated. Rock, you know, because uh, Kirk, who obviously was using a much lighter setting earlier on, merely made a damaged piece of Dr. Brown. And we never see Dr. Brown again. Right. So it's pretty clear that whatever setting Kirk was using was sufficient to knock out robots. But Kirby is using disintegrate. And that tells us something about Kirby. So Corby moves them into another room. Kirk attacks Corby. Corby throws him off, but now without revealing what I had predicted, that Corby too is an android. Corby was frozen and dying. There was only one way for him to continue living. But I'm still the same as I was before. Chapel asks, but are you, Roger? Are you? Corby sends Andrea to take, takes, take care of the intruders. No, no, I can transmit. Oh, that's coming. Don't worry, that's coming, because I wrote down that, that word for word for word. <laughs> Corby sends Andrea to take care of the other intruders, the, the men beaming down. 
Luckily, there was a favor- phaser stashed in the same room on top of the machine, and so she picks that up and walks out. And there's Android Kirk standing there. I will kiss you now, she says. Nope, it is illogical, says Kirk. So she shoots him. Oh, kiss me! No, exactly. it's illogical. So she shoots him. <laughs> Nothing like an android scorned, apparently. That's right. Apparently. So uh, Andrea walks in and says, don't worry, I just killed Kirk. He tried to... Uh, oh. <laughs> Apparently, Kirk isn't dead after all. Is this what you wanted, Corby? He says, you're... I'm not programmed for security alerts. (laughs) That's right. So here we go. Another big Kirk uh, Kirk monologue here. Is this what you wanted, Corby? Your flawless society. Perfect beings killing off one another. Aren't you doing what you hate most in in humans? Killing off one another like flicking off a light? But I'm not a computer. Ask me to do anything. Test me. Ask me to solve any, uh, equate any, uh, transmit. I love that scene. (laughs) Does it really make that much difference, Christine? Does it? He says with his flaky hand rolling all over the place. Yes, yes it does. Your hand is scary. I am Roger. (laughs) I am Roger Corby, he says. Oh, yeah, it's exactly like, uh, I am Captain Kirk. I wrote that down, I promise. Yes, it's exactly like that. (laughs) These people who have totally lost it, who are, like, trying to, you know, like, no, no, I am who I say I am. Which, of course, is a theme of Star Trek. I am who I say I am. Hand over the, hand over the phaser, Corby. If there's any human left in you, hand me that phaser. No. I have constructed the perfect being, he says. I've proven it. I've proven it. And then he hands, hands Kirk the phaser. Then he asks Andrea to hand over the phaser. But she does not. She tries to... I must protect Corby. But I'm in love with you. I don't know what's happening. They go in for the kiss. The phaser fires. And both of them disappear. <laughs> Chapel cries. Spock arrives. You get... It's clear that uh, Nurse Chapel has not processed what's going on here. She is still... You know, in some sense, like a normal human being would be, still kind of shocked that Corby was alive. She got reunited with him. Still, wow! You know? And then, oh my goodness, you're a robot! (laughs) And... You betrayed everything you worked for. And, I mean, there's so much going on here. And she has not processed it, it's clear. Right. And so for him to die while she still is kind of like, no, no, you know, you're Corby. Wait, wait, you're awful. You're not Corby. I'm not sure. Are you, aren't you? You know, it's a tragedy. As opposed to, I think in a modern telling, instead of having Andrea kill Corby, Nurse Chapel would kill Corby, and by that time she would have she would be the one to declare you're not Corby anymore. Boop, and you'd be like, "Up, see." Well, she probably would have had a monologue that was like, "You're not the Corby I remember. The Corby I knew would have you know cared about human beings. Would have yeah, you know felt differently about life." But of course, then it's not a tragedy. Then it's a arc for the Chapel character, right? Whereas here, what we get is a tragedy. And no arc.
So as Spock arrives, he asks where Dr. Corby is. Kirk says, Corby was never here. Back to the bridge for our epilogue. Chapel is staying on the ship, she has decided. Spock, <laughs> Spock says uh, to Kirk, uh, your use of the word half-breed, it's so unsophisticated. Kirk says, well, try to come up with something better next time. When I'm in that situation. So What's so that? I, when I'm in that situation. You know, when I'm in like, that situation, right, yes. And so, on the one hand, Kirk ha- I mean, if, if Kirk used a sophisticated statement, it wouldn't have tipped off Spock. Exactly, exactly. So, he, I mean, part of the crudeness of it was the tip off, you know, uh, you know, it's like he's, uh, if he had sat there, I'm a cannibal, I'm a cannibal. And then, uh, <laughs> when, when Spock in front of him, he's like, you look delicious. <laughs> you know, that would have been a tip off. You can't have, right. Exactly. You, you can't have tip offs that are politically correct because you won't notice them. You know, if his tip off was, you know, and Dorians are worthy crew members on the ship. He'd just be like, that was an odd thing to say. <laughs> but it right, wouldn't have exactly. been like, oh my God, that can't be the real Kirk. Kirk hates Andorians. Because Kirk doesn't. Right, so exactly. I think what they're doing is they're lampshading for the audience. What we just said here, Halfbreed, by the way, you may not have noticed it because you're not a sophisticated you know, group of people. That was an awful thing to have said. Yes. And we're pointing it out. And both our characters are going to acknowledge that it was kind of awful. We know it was awful. Now you know it was awful. The characters know it was awful. There's no disagreement. It was awful. So the filming of this episode took uh, took eight days to actually film. uh, Spread over nine, including weekends. It spanned a total of 13. No wonder Roddenberry's getting no sleep. Right, exactly. And he actually, he was... He was rewriting pages over the weekend. No other episode in the series except for the pilot took this long. Uh, Goldstone was not blamed, however, for the extra time and cost overruns. It was Robert uh, Robert, Justman note, Robert Justman's notes of the production cited the problem as being a bad script. Oh, blame the writer. Exactly. So, of course, they brought back uh, Steiner back in to do the music for this one again. The menacing rook music that we hear with the kettle drums and all of that yeah. stuff returns again and again and again. We hear that music I a lot over the course music. of this series. So, <laughs> typical. You. I don't hear music. And... You don't hear music until you've. Yeah. You don't hear music until you've heard the song over and over and over I and over really and over have again. To like it tends to be you. Listen to the soundtrack to the episode and hear just the music, and then rewatch and go, "Oh yeah, that that music's very effective." <laughs> yeah. So effective, I did not That's notice great, it when totally I first hear, heard it. Kettle drums, you say? <laughs> Kettle drums. Yes, exactly. Uh, so uh, $211,000 were spent on this episode. There were only three other episodes during the fe- first season that would cost more. Balance of Terror was one of them um, due to all of the uh, optical effects that were needed. And uh, unfor- unfortunately for the producers, of course, the other ones are yet to come. Oops. The first season deficit, however, how much over budget they were at this point in in production was already $19,000 over budget, which, of course, in 1964 was quite a bit of cash. But, you know, if you just 
reduced your uh, staff of actors, perhaps. <laughs> You're right, exactly. Clearly, you can do an episode without them. Wait, there's that. <laughs> all right, well, uh, that's it. All I got on this episode. Anything else we didn't get to that you want to share? I believe we uh, covered it all. I did, too. Another good and lengthy episode on an episode I didn't wasn't sure whether or not I liked uh, before the end of it. But uh, once I got to think about it a little more and come up with some notes, I really dug this episode. I think that it's probably underrated. I don't think people like it as much as they probably should. So what would be interesting is to go back, you know, and, and look at the episodes once we've watched them all and go, well, you know, here are the episodes about, you know, super beings, Charlie X, uh, what happens to, uh, you know, his friend in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Right. Um, uh, Trelane, when we encounter him, the Organians. Right. And, you know, and have some thoughts about super beings. And then, of course, there'll also be episodes about, you know, super AI, when Kirk has to turn off the computer and fleet, for, you know, save the planet. Or, uh, right. Does not compute. In this case. Does not compute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to take a look at those uh, over the course of the series and uh, see what we find about what each of And it, see, if the, uh, see if the themes are all repeating themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Is there some, are they bringing something new to the same story, or is this just to feel like another retread? That'll be a fun thing to look over over the next uh, few uh, episodes. Uh, well, that's it. Another episode done. Next week, we'll be doing Dagger in the Mind. So uh, between now and then, I hope you all get to watch it. And that'll do it for us this week. As always, my name is Matt. I live in Austin. And from Planet Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. Thank you.